0: Today on The Art Dealer Show, we will hear gallery owner Heidi Lee say
1: If your priorities are in order, if you're buying art because you love it, inevitably that's the kind of artwork that goes up in value. So people that are concerned only about the the investment value and the money really should go buy blue chip stock.
0: Welcome to The Art Dealer Show a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have gallery owner Heidi Lee. Heidi is the owner of AFA Gallery in Soho, New York, as well as in France. And during our conversation, we're going to get into some great stories, starting with how her career as a professional dancer eventually led to her being a very successful art dealer. We're going to talk about how a mysterious man with a briefcase filled with art led to Heidi being put smack dab in the middle of the biggest craze the art business perhaps has ever seen. And then, like all crazes, we're going to talk about how when it eventually came crashing down, Heidi was able to pick up the pieces, reorganize her business, and go on to even greater prosperity. But we're going to get to those in just a moment. In the meanwhile, I want to share with you a realization I just recently had, and that is, One of the best lessons that I have ever been taught about being an art dealer came from the Rolling Stones. Yes, that's right. The Rolling Stones. And when you have a story that centers around the Rolling Stones, well, I can't think of a better reason why you wouldn't go over to the old art dealer bar to hear the rest of it. So if you got a moment, please come on over and enjoy me. I promise you it's worth the time. are you comfortable? We have ourselves a drink. We settled in. Are you ready to hear about how the Rolling Stones taught me something important about what it is to be an art dealer? Good. That's a good story. I'm going to start here. Like many of you, like a lot of us listening to this podcast, I started off on the gallery floor. I worked on the gallery floor for many years. And even now, I get that experience every so often. I help out in galleries. I go to my artist shows. And even at times when it's not during the shows themselves, it's a regular hours. If I'm just there at a gallery having a meeting, I'll help out. I'll take it up. Matter of fact, we, we even discussed that taking place in a recent episode that we had. I like it. I enjoy flexing my art dealer muscles. But I have to admit, it's easy when you do it that way. When you just come crashing in. But... When you're an art dealer who works the floor day after day week after week, year after year it gets tough. It's difficult. You've gotten up for thousands and thousands of ups that have come through the door. No matter how much people remind you or you remind yourself that any one of them could be a fantastic opportunity it's tough. It's particularly tough to reset yourself. You get on the computer you surf the web. You you respond to some emails that come in. You organize some paperwork at your desk. You get stuck in a whole different mode. And then, then someone comes in through the front door and it's showtime. Except you're not in that gear. It's been a while since you've made a noise. You haven't talked to anybody. There hasn't been an up for a while. You've been in a more administrative state of mind or a calculation state of mind as you were figuring out a complex invoice let's say and now you've got to start you got to somehow get it all together and move from zero to 60 let alone 100 and be in front of them and be ready to perform and it just doesn't happen it's a slow roll up that's just the way it goes there's no avoiding it that time gets misinterpreted by the collectors when it takes us a while to get up from our desks pull out from that email that we were deep deep in the middle of writing the perfect response to that collector that gets that gets mistaken as meaning I- i'm judging you. you're not worth getting up from my desk and let's be frank some of us are judging them some of us just don't want to get up from our desks but that's not the most of us most of us are professionals and we want to do the right thing we want to do good we want to always be on top-notch performance when we're dealing with the collectors coming in but not always. And that time when we walk towards them, and we're just gaining speed, and we're moving slow, because it's been that kind of day, that's going to get misinterpreted too. That slow walk, well, that's taken as, did I really have to get up from behind this desk? Have, do I have to? Must I? And the collector feels like, gee whiz, am I putting you out? And you've been there. You've been on the other side of that too. We all have. And despite the fact that we know for most of us that's not what it's about, that it's just hard, there are those of us who really are doing that and are really putting out that message too. And we know that as well. Okay. So this is where the Rolling Stones come in. This is where that great lesson that I was talking about comes in from the band. As you may know, uh, I have spent a lot of time with the Rolling Stones. I've represented one of the members of the band as a fine artist. And in that very long stretch that I and my partner did that, we spent a lot of time on the road with them. And during that time, we saw God knows how many concerts, maybe even hundreds. And over all those concerts, well, we spent a lot of time backstage. It became our job after a while. We brought collectors and VIPs back there with us. It was part of the process. And backstage at the Rolling Stones, well, it's unlike any other rock bands backstage. In the 50-some-odd years that they've been on the road, traditions have developed, and they're important. The backstage has its own culture, and it has its own rituals. And one of those rituals beyond just the shepherd's pie that is at every single concert, beyond the snooker table that goes with them to every stop along the tour, because God knows, gotta have the snooker table. Beyond that, there is something that will take place every single evening. And that is, at just about 45 minutes to an hour before the concert begins, security will come out to make an announcement to all of the guests. And they'll say, ladies and gentlemen, And thank you very much for uh, joining us backstage here with the Rolling Stones. But we're going to have to ask you to leave. And they make sure that every single person leaves the backstage. The reason for that is, once they are all gone, the boys, they're going to play. Not for the audience. They're going to play with just themselves. They're going to set up some simple amps, a simple drum kit for Charlie And they're going to play not their own songs, typically. They're going to play some standards. They're going to play some of the music that inspired them to be the band that they eventually became. They're going to play some R and B. They're going to play some blues by itself. What they're going to do is they're going to get what musicians will often call into the pocket, they're going to get into the groove, they're going to get in sync with each other. They're going to do this so that when they do finally go on stage, When they get out into that stadium to play in front of the tens of thousands of people who paid a minimum of $300 a ticket, if not more, and that's for the crappy seats in the back, they're going to be ready to roll. There's no warm-up. There's no staring at each other or glances or trying to figure out how to get into groove. They're in groove. They're playing like exactly they have been doing, playing for the past hour. They are mid-concert, even though you don't know it. So when that first chord gets strung, it is perfect. They are solid. They are ready. They are already at 100. There's no roll-up from zero. There's no getting from back behind their own proverbial desk in the gallery. There's no slow crawl towards that audience who came in and them having to work their way up and start to get the idea of talking about the art in their minds or start playing the music in their case. There's none of that. They're 100%. Because they're professionals. Because the way you become the Rolling Stones is is by always being a perfect version of the Rolling Stones. And when that audience comes, they are ready for them. And it is a magnificent, beautiful thing to experience. If you have never seen it before, I highly recommend you get to experience it once in your lifetime while it's still available. You'll never see a more professional group of musicians putting on a more perfect performance. And that, that is a model. That is a model for me to live by. And here's what I took away from it. I learned that you need to be in constant movement. I started to think about when I'm in a gallery and I go out to shows, when we put on trade shows, when we go to the fairs and we have our own booths at Limelight Agency that you have to be in constant performance and you have to be ready to roll for the second the public comes in. And one of the best ways of doing that is by taking out of your mind any measurement or any judgment of any individual encounter with the public. Everybody is a performance. Everybody is worth it. Because even if they're not qualified, as we horribly phrase it, and even if they're not the people who would be buying this artwork, or whatever the case may be, we have done something important for ourselves. We have kept ourselves in shape. We're active. We're talking about the art. So when finally that good prospect comes in, that perfect collector, the person who can do a million dollars worth of art buying damage today, when that person is in front of us, we didn't have to figure it out. We didn't have to ask ourselves, is that the person? We just were performing at a perfect state anyway. We were there. Not only were we there, but we were already perfectly in the pocket. We were in groove. We were moving. We were smooth. The words flowed out of our mouths because that's what they've been doing all day long. It's easier to keep on moving than it is to get up and down. Ask anybody who's ever been a server in a restaurant Getting to be on the road for 10 some odd years at the Rolling Stones, those were some great experiences. But if there's a lesson to be had in that entire experience, one that has done more benefit to myself as an art dealer, there's probably none greater than that one lesson there. How I learned to be a better art dealer by watching the Rolling Stones being the Rolling Stones. This is an ad, but it's true. As I'm recording this, I'm on my way to Chicago to put on what is probably the biggest art show I'm going to put on this year. And when I was planning it with my client, the very first thing that came up was, how are we going to put the word out? The next thing that came up was, what publicist are we going to hire to put the word out? Right after that, we laughed because we said, who else are we going to call? Of course, it's going to be Alison Zucker Perlman. Like I said, it's true, but it's an ad ellison zucker perlman the owner of relevant communications.net for many years they have specialized in nothing else but our industry the art industry they have worked with publishers and distributors like myself they have worked directly with artists and they have certainly worked with art galleries all over the country and they have gotten incredible results oh they have gotten incredible results Trust me, if you want to do something serious, if you have a big something, something to do in this business and you want to get some people to show up, you should be calling up Relevant Communications at RelevantCommunications.net. Talk to Allison Zucker-Perlman and find out what her team of PR specialists can do for you. This is also an ad and it's also true. Just the other day, I got a phone call from my own business partner and he said, Danny, did you ever read that article about galleries who work with art distributors and agents and publishers versus galleries that work directly with the artist? And I said, no, somehow I missed that. Where where was that article? That's, And he said, Danny, it was in Art World News, you know, the magazine you advertise in your podcast. He got me. The very magazine that I advertise on my podcast and I'm telling you about every episode and always telling you that if you're in this business, you have to be reading from cover to cover and I somehow missed this article and I paid the price. Well, almost when I looked up the article, it was fantastic, by the way. There lies the moral to this story. Don't be like me, at least not how I am always. Read Art World News if you want to know what's going on in the art business and if you want to talk to the people who believe in knowing what's going on in the art business, advertise in Art World News. This is also an ad, and it's also true. You know where you can be able to find me later in the month? Well, it's going to be Art Expo in New York City. That's where, put on by the fine folks at Redwood Media Group. Why am I going to be there? Well, if I was in the fashion business, I would be at Magic. If I was in the broadcasting business, I would go over to NAB. That's going on right now. And if I was a nerd, I would go to Comic-Con. Sorry about that, nerds. Anyway, you're in the art business. You should be where the art business is. It's not just a place where you go when you get expensive cocktails and expensive snacks. There's also a lot of artists there, a lot of beautiful things being shown. You have publishers, you have distributors, and you even have a lot of gallery owners walking around looking for, yeah, you guessed it, artists. And to see what works they're going to put on their walls over the next year. This is where all the folks in our industry come together. So go where we're all going, Art Expo New York. You can get the details at ArtexpoNewYork.com, and you can find out about all the future shows coming up at RedwoodMediaGroup.com. The first time I met our guest for this episode, Heidi Lee, was when we were putting on an art event in New York City with a couple Playboy Bunnies and more of their Playboy Bunny friends. A psychotic husband, a ton of art, a huge crowd and a line wrapped around the block to get in, a lot of press, and I think there might have even been a little bit of police action. And I think that set the tempo and the mood for our friendship ever since. Now, Heidi... Heidi Lee, if you do not know her, as I said at the top of the show, she's the owner of AFA Gallery in Manhattan. She also has a location in France, and we're going to get into that later on. And she's been in the business since the 1980s. And in that time, she's run well over a dozen galleries. She's also been an advisor for the Walt Disney Company and Art World Magazine. She's consulted for Christie's and Sotheby's. She has also been an expert appraiser for the Library of Congress. She's an authority on applied graphics and cartooning and was recently honored by the French and given the insignia of Chevalier. 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 I can't speak French for the life of me, but it's in the order of arts and letters. So that's got to be good. And from what I understand, not only is she someone who I'm going to refer to as Heidi Lee, but I need to announce her as Lady Lee. So, please enjoy my conversation with Lady Lee.
1: Uh, Yeah, I lived in California and uh, and I was a professional dancer with a starving jazz troupe, Bilali and Company, for some years. And I I, I was living in San Francisco and I was teaching yoga and beginning ballet at, at the City College of San Francisco and I hurt my leg. Um, my landing leg, and, um, and I got tendonitis quite badly in it. So um, I moved to New Jersey. Well,
0: oh, that's a big jump, though. <laughs> How do you make the decision that I'm teaching dancing, I'm living in San Francisco, now the next place I need to be is New Jersey?
1: i was I was having um a relationship with a man who was a lawyer from New Jersey and working in San Francisco, and he was laid off and uh, I wanted to d- just change and get away from dancing because it was too sad for me you know it was um. Uh, I decided that it would be a brilliant idea to go get a job in in a health club because then I could do rehabilitation on my leg for for free with this great Nautilus equipment. So within six months, I was a manager of the biggest health club organization in the world. And so I discovered that I found sales a very creative outlet. And so you're selling
0: memberships? I was
1: selling memberships, but managing the gallery as well. and
0: You just said gallery.
1: I mean, <laughs> managing the health club. <laughs> so I was managing the health club as well. It was an intense career because I was probably working about 70 hours a week. And if I wasn't working, I was on an island because it was a kind of set up so that the t- top salespeople were rewarded with an island holiday once a month. Yeah, after um, five years of that, I was pretty burnt out and tired. You know, I just left. Uh, I was bouncing off of the walls, and you know, with my fine art degree, and I landed in a circle gallery that Carolyn Solomon owned at the South Street Seaport.
0: Now was is that just because you saw an ad for
1: no, a job, or you I just knew think, there was I should be in a gallery? Down there. I, I thought I should be in a gallery, and I, maybe I'd set up an interview or something. And I I, so I, I went down there, but it was literally in two different physical spaces, right next to each other. And there was the fine art with the Vasarely and the Erte on the left, mm-hmm. and then on the right there was a s- smaller space with all of this animation art, which was, you know, considered to be, you know, the, the dregs of, you know, uh, of, you know, the, the gallery, not real fine art. That's where they put me, and I discovered that uh, I, I found joy in it. And I knew that I liked the conceptual work. I knew that I liked Ivan Earl and Mary Blair and um, Bill Tightlaw, You know the the real masters, the you know who did the conceptual work. And so, I was selling animation art, and Wall Street was in its heyday. And one day, this wild man from LA walked in with a briefcase full of animation cells and we bonded instantaneously and he handed over the animation cells to me with a briefcase.
0: And you had been there for how long at this point?
1: About six months.
0: Okay so you're still you're you're entirely new you know yeah still don't know anything about the business at this point. Okay
1: so I took my little client list because I, you know, I had signed no non-compete agreement or anything like that. And my, um, my briefcase full of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cells. And I decided to go and, um, I don't know, have a little animation gallery in my living room.
0: So he pitches He He's like, I've got all these animation cells and you know now how to sell them. Come on board with me. Is that all it is? Um, or?
1: Pretty much because the the animation cells that he had were of such superior quality that it was irresistible to me because you know in the in the gallery, we were selling artwork that was animation cells that were double the price, and you know it, it just imagery that was um, less interesting, less um, less superior for sure. And I w- th- these were a list, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, the whole um, you know group of Warner Brothers characters from a particular cartoon, the Bugs Bunny Tweety Show, from 1961. And where did he get them? Well,
0: <laughs> oh, did, I, did I hit something?
1: Okay. Funny you should ask. <laughs> okay. He got them out of a dumpster in a warehouse uh, in outside of L.A. <laughs> where there was a Warner Brothers. Uh, animation studio. So they were throwing away their animation cells. He was in the dumpster taking the animation cells out. And then some years later, there was this huge FBI investigation and I was interviewed and it was this big fiasco. But the thing is... Hold it.
0: Is it just by chance? I mean, is he just walking down an alleyway and notices that all this animation is going into a dumpster and has an epiphany? Or... Is he got an idea and he's now staking out the dumpsters behind the studio waiting for them to dump something?
1: That's a really good question. He had a chocolate shop in the same like, area, so they, they had a shared dumpster. So when he spied the animation cells in the dumpster, he proceeded to take them out and have them. But if it's, a, it's abandoned, uh-huh. then, you know, it's, uh, it's fair game. So yeah. a, in any case, at the end of the day, the FBI case was dropped. And, and the reason why was because the security guard who worked there testified that he saw them con- constantly putting the animation cells into the dumpster.
0: Oh, so while you're in the process of selling them with them, your new partner... Is it that they picked up on all of a sudden these animation sales are showing up on the market and then they reported no, it? No, the,
1: the FBI investigation happened some years later, probably four years later.
0: But did Warner Brothers trigger the FBI?
1: Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. All right. So you have this
0: <laughs> opportunistic chocolate salesman and you have now... <laughs> and you have you have all of six months' experience of working in an art gallery... So it's not like you're a seasoned professional, but you're just you're flying by the seat of your pants. Yes. So how are you marketing?
1: There was an industry rag called Intune, and there was also uh, a, an, a, an organization called the Animation Art Guild. And so I was on the board of advisors for the Animation Art Guild, and, um, and I would advertise in this little industry rag. and. Uh...
0: You're, so you're on the board of advisors <laughs> at age what?
1: <laughs> I, I was in my uh, late twenties.
0: Okay, <laughs> I can picture I knew, it though. I'm it sure was, you were totally. I knew, at... carto-
1: I knew cartoons. and yeah. I knew you know. And at this point, it but you knew been...
0: cartoons because you had watched them as a kid, or because you had studied.
1: Yeah, and I and I studied too. Okay. Sure.
0: So now you've set up this little enterprise. You're doing it. How long is it like this?
1: It's like this for about in my dining room. Yeah. With my first daughter, well, when she was two. Um, then I moved. So it was like this for a year and a half.
0: And were you inviting people that you met through the magazine to your dining room to come and take a look at cells? Uh, very or?
1: rarely. Okay, very well, rarely. well, how
0: were you communicating with them?
1: Uh, over the Internet and over the fax. Oh, this is a great no, story. No oh, 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 this, this is, is so good. You already placed You told so me this Vassarelli. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> okay, so here's what I did. Okay. I sold them over the fax machine, and I would sell the animation cells by taking the animation drawing that was behind the cell that was used to create the cell, of course, uh-huh. and I would write a note on the animation drawing oh, no. and trim it with scissors and stick it in the fax machine. And <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> yep.
0: Is- That's funny. Okay, yeah. so you're just faxing it off to people and they're <laughs> saying, "Great, I'll take it." I mean, how much were they?
1: A really superior Bugs Bunny cell was $250. So in you. the heyday that same cell would have fetched 1500. And then after the animation industry went in the toilet, 850
0: and heyday, we're going to say that's like ninety four ninety five yeah, yes, right? okay,
1: so the the animation art that I started to amass that my you know, where I found my passion was the conceptual work, the beautiful storyboards and conceptual paintings, especially from Fantasia. And the vintage Disney work was so beautiful. and uh, but the focus was always American illustration art, and never. Never Fleischer, but with Disney and with um, Warner Brothers for sure. As a matter of fact, just a few months ago, uh, I was on the corner of Hollywood and Vine in this glass studio, and Larry King was interviewing me with a Pinocchio cell and the Blue Fairy on this side, and one of my Fantasia pencil drawings on the other side, and he was interviewing me about my Disney expertise. Larry King. Yeah. That's cool. That's very, <laughs> that's very
0: cool. So, all right. So now you're $250 at a time. Are you learning how to sell art at this process? I mean, this sounds very transactional. You got collectors out there, the kind of natural fans and basically they're, 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 uh, drug addicts and you have drugs.
1: Yes. And I learned about Sales in the health club, and that was a very high-pressure sale. But it, it, uh, but also, you know, when when we are when we come into this world, we don't know how to take an engine apart or perform like an Olympic athlete or do anything, play a clarinet um, unless we practice. And um, and I think that being in sales is something that is a profession that requires savvy. And if you know what you're doing as far as communication and helping people to get something that they want and get past objections, because really it's not the kind of a sale like when you go buy a chicken in a grocery store or something. It is a sale that is about helping people let go of um, being afraid of letting go of money You know, people are so afraid of letting go of money, and so it's getting past that. And then the other thing is helping people to really realize that art is necessary and they deserve joy. So that is the focus of the core of selling art, as I see it.
0: Do you think it's just... Would you say there's any distinction between the two, between selling health club membership and selling art. Oh, I mean, I'm yes. I'm trying to create oh, a thread yes. here. I mean, I believe it is. I'm not saying that naively. And I said, well, because I'm, I'm running it through my head, you know, trying to think of where's the bridge on this. And I'm thinking, okay, letting go of money, you know, being able to f- feel that you deserve joy. And you can say that in a health club, I guess, right?
1: Like you want to be happier with your own life. It's more about results, and it's more about you want to be firm, tight, tone, lean, mean. You want results. That you know you you want to feel good. You Uh know it's about vitality. It's about selling something that is um, very personal, and you you can also sell it with a lot of urgency because sometimes people come in and they've been to a doctor and they're scared. With that motivation. Um, it it turns it into a very different kind of a sale. With art, it's about what you need is joy and you deserve joy. Right, and you never
0: get that leverage. I mean, there's no urgency in art. Other than- Well,
1: sure, if it's original. Well,
0: of that variety. I mean, once you've established that you really want it and you've established the value, then the urgency is in the, well, I get this thing that now I'm really focused on and I really want it. Never is there a threat of your health. Correct. So what's the next step?
1: Uh, the first gallery that I opened unofficially was in the first level of the, uh, the house that I lived in with my second daughter. And that was in Westchester in Hastings-on-Hudson. Just for a little while. And then I opened my first retail space in 1984 in Hastings-on-Hudson.
0: And are you still working with that same partner that brought you in or had all the cells in his briefcase? I imagine by no, now you've friends. blown through all of it. Oh, and, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, we're friends.
0: So you opened up this retail gallery, but that's a big thing too. You've never directed, you know, a gallery floor at this point.
1: Well, but I was a manager and I in right. my in, and I'm the eldest of five and I'm, you know, I have this core confidence of a master of the universe and, you know, <laughs> So, with a a little, a mountain of inspiration and a pile of cells, anything was possible.
0: Well, okay, so anything's possible. Do you have a big, grandiose vision of yourself? I mean, do you think this is the first step before owning 20 galleries and, you know, becoming some sort of a queen of the animation world? Or...
1: (laughs) was a beautiful gallery and it was very museum. And it was in the height of the day when Michael Jackson and Whoopi Goldberg and Steven Spielberg were going head to head, you know, for animation cells that were, you know, upwards of Peter, Pete Marola paid 286000 thousand dollars for the band leader, uh, the band concert piece. And that was a record setting sell, but it it was in that moment. So it was a really interesting place to be. And it was also a time when there was soon to be an enormous influx of these corporate um, animation studios, the Disney galleries, the Warner Brothers galleries, and they started popping up like mushrooms in every zip code and, uh, you know, on a space station. It was ridiculous. Right. So.
0: Yeah, but before that happened, it was happening kind of organically that this was becoming hot. What do you think was going on that was making that happen? I mean, there was a point where you could go to Disneyland and they would stick a hundred cells in one box and they would sell it for like twenty bucks.
1: Disney art corner pieces with Cavassier, yeah. Uh huh. They had a collaboration with this little gallery in uh, San Francisco, the Cavassier Galleries, and they would paint these these backgrounds that synced up with the animation cells and trim the animation cells. And and during the, this moment when I, uh, you know, had my first gallery, those little Cavassier setups that could have been acquired for were now worth Mm $1,200. And to answer your question about why, maybe nostalgia, maybe people longing for something that was just pure joy, um, you know, it pulls your heartstrings. And, you know, everybody likes to feel young and happy, and cartoons make us feel that way, don't they?
0: They do, but I'm wondering if... uh... It's it's just the generation that's right came along. That is, enough people were the right age that grew up on the right animation, and they had and jobs. Kind of, <laughs> and they had jobs, and you know, maybe different generations of animation that wouldn't have uh, lined up so perfectly.
1: And the but, economy was great. Two friends of mine to this day, uh, I met in the mid '80s, and they when I was at Circle Gallery, mm-hmm. and they both worked at Wall Street you know they were they would come in and throw money around because they just had so much money they didn't even know what to do with it <laughs> <laughs> and it was fun you know, and then I opened up a, a gallery in New York City in Soho, right next to Mary Boone, across from Leo Castelli on West Broadway, between Spring and Prince. And
0: so here comes Heidi yeah. with her little animation, parking herself right between the biggest art dealers in the twentieth
1: century. Et voila. <laughs> 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 and you know what? I uh, Leo has passed, and Mary Boone, you know, is uptown, and uh, and uh, I am still in Soho. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm like a landmark gallery oh, right. in Soho. That's right, really
0: the one holdout out there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You got a few neighbors, but it took you a while to get to the Soho part, right?
1: Yes, it was about uh, six years later.
0: And is there a part of you that's itching maybe to get out of the animation at some point? Or are you just as happy as ever just to be selling animation?
1: Well, a a couple of things happened and the industry shifted so significantly that I I had no choice. Um, You know, my gallery had to evolve With, with the industry of CGI emerging it's computer-generated imagery, animation art truly became a lost art form. So that was happening. And then uh, the emergence of all of these Warner Brothers and Disney galleries just completely oversaturating the industry, um... Uh, You know, everything just shifted because there was a, a flooding on the market of the limited edition art, and then everything just went kaput, like, you know, down the toilet. The industry really suffered. And in this moment... The way that uh, my gallery evolved was in a very natural way by taking on fine art that bridged animation uh, in a very organic and beautiful way, uh, because the emotion of it was very similar. And we took on Tom Everhart, the pop art uh, peanuts painter, as you know, and... um, we took on the secret art of Dr. Seuss, and started to also have original comic strips by Charles Schulz and uh, some original uh, illustrations by Dr. Seuss. This was uh, a, a beautiful way to evolve and stay in an American pop culture genre that you know was a niche that was successful.
0: I wonder what did it answer more. I mean. Because I see two different things happening here. You have a set of collectors, and now they've been collecting something that's losing value at some point quickly, and they're getting tired of it and it's being oversaturated. Are they the same people that are you entertaining them? Is it your hope to transfer them, and did they? Or I wonder, is it just fitting the dialogue that you're already familiar with? That is, you and your staff and your organization have become really gifted at communicating the message of popular culture and that it was easier, to instead of reinventing that dialogue, to move over to that same kind of dialogue even though it's a different product.
1: That's a good question, Danny, and I think it's both because there are some collectors and clients and friends that have been with, uh, with us for decades and there were some people that were uh, that were lost, you know, because they they just um, stopped collecting for whatever reason. Their priorities shifted, um, uh, you know, lots of things happened. Uh, and then there were, there are some clients that continue to collect the really special, extraordinary conceptual animation art, because there's not a lot of it out there.
0: You know, I don't know if I've ever thought about it quite in this way. Obviously, right now, we're going through this moment in the art industry where the way people collect, the experience in the gallery seems to be shifting. And I'm wondering if that's something that's always going on in the background, that not only were these things happening that were diluting, you know, that particular segment of the art collecting world, but that there was a shift at that time, too, that was taking place, that the nature of collecting and the nature of the collectors were going to change no matter what the product was that was doing
1: well or not doing well was. If you look at uh, like a three-year period historically, when the collapse of the animation industry happened, it was the economy. It was the you know the real um, emergence of CGI. It was um, the Disney art program oversaturating the industry by putting out five. Expensive Lion King limited editions in less than fourteen months, which set the collector base reeling because they couldn't handle it. And you know, and it, um, and, and then, and then Chuck Jones passed away. So, you know, there was just so much that happened. It made it all just. Collapse. I it just... shifted. Something shifted, and many of the galleries went away. And it was incredible to observe the enormous machine and corporation of the the Warner Brothers galleries just poof, just disappear, and then the Disney galleries go away. I mean, that was a real you know eye opener as far as the reality of the industry. You know, just going to a, a very different place and not a good place.
0: And I think we've seen that happen in lots of different parts of the art business too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I remember, for instance, and it's a smaller version of it, but like when Arte was in a, ph- a phenomenon in uh. art program, right? But remember then later on, you know, the object, the art showed up, and you had air flutes in galleries, champagne flutes and jewelry oh, sure. and the furniture and homeware in general. And it was just air everything all the time. And that seemed to kind of bring the end of that, too. Because eventually yeah. you just had people where, you know, they had 50 different kinds of air things in their yeah, home. too and, much. You, and you were done. It was over. But it makes you wonder, is it going to happen anyway? Like, if you can imagine the time, if none of that happened, if Disney didn't open up the stores and Warner Brothers didn't open up the stores, and if the digital aspect didn't happen and all the crazy limited editions didn't flood the market, if everything was status quo, would the collectors still have just chugged along, you know, indefinitely? Or was it kind of having a time, regardless, they just accelerated
1: it? I I mean, with the emergence of CGI, there were no more original animation cells. So, you know, a lot of the collectors were focused on what was original. And and they didn't want the limited editions that were just being oversaturating the market. And then people perceived it as something that was not so special. That was part of it, too, I think.
0: So do you think there was anything different with those collectors, though, than the people you see now?
1: I think that the, an animation sale was somehow more fun, consistently more fun, because, you know, there's just a little something about it that was ridiculous. To pay $1,500 for a Bugs Bunny, certainly it's Americana, for sure.
0: But do you think collectors kind of got off on that ridiculousness? like i yeah, can't the whole believe thing was so i'm buying much fun
1: yes uh-huh. <laughs> but you know it is a lot of money so there there had to be a way to validate the preciousness of it so so this is why the oversaturation of the market affected the market adversely
0: that's very interesting but it's kind of too bad i mean you like to think that all art should be that way you know why should any art purchase be something other than fun
1: Well, because we're talking about money and we're talking about investment. And over the centuries, intelligent, wealthy people have put money into art. And it's been a good decision because, you know, if the economy tanks, money is safe in art. It's just that an art consultant is not uh, licensed, you know, to sell blue chip art like blue chip stocks. It's illegal to sell artwork as an investment. So when an art consultant or galleryist talks to um, a potential buyer, a collector, about the investment value of artwork, we can say, well, over the past you know two decades, we can see that this. Uh, you know the artwork by this artist, whether it's a print or an original, you know is is you know increasing in value fifteen percent a year, which is formidable and we can say that um, you know one of the w- reasons that people invest in artwork is because of the joy that it gives and ev- every day if you look at it and you love it, that's worth a million bucks, isn't it? but
0: you know it's funny I just had a recent conversation like that and took someone to task and about exactly when I' going to do it right now my here. (laughs) That works when it works, but just like we just talked about with Airtay, you know, people who have that can't sell it, at least not, you know, 10 cents on the dollar. If they love it, that's great. They got what they wanted out of it. You know, I always find it funny that our product, what we sell is supposed to do something that no other product is asked to do. Mm -hmm. Someone buys a couch, and they can spend many thousands and thousands of dollars on it. No one says, is it an investment? It's just a well-made couch, and it looks great, and it does the job that you're paying it to do, right? But somehow, when we put it in a frame, people immediately want to know, is it going to be a safe place to place their money? Is it going to you know, go up in value over time? And it very well might do that. It's an exciting part of what we do. But- mm-hmm. I can name more losers than I can name winners.
1: Yeah, but there's a lot of winners out there. And it's interesting to consider that if your priorities are in order, if you're buying art because you love it, and, and it's, a, you know, an emotional thing, you know, as opposed to an, a mental, intellectual thing where you're, you're thinking about it, you know, about investment and money. And you, so your priorities are the passion. Inevitably, that's the kind of artwork that goes up in value. So people that are concerned only about the, the investment value and the money really should go buy blue chip stocks.
0: Yeah. And that's the way I always see it too. You know, I've always avoided that conversation myself and people kept on talking about, you know, investment, 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 unless we're talking specifically about art that typically functions that way. You know, we already know it. And if you're talking about it so much, you're obviously not getting the greater pleasure out of what art offers anyway. It's never going to make you excited because it's gaining in value. It's going to make you excited because you like looking at the piece of artwork. That's mm-hmm, the only really mm-hmm. great value to it. And also, I, I always hated it as an art dealer, too, because the minute you talked about things in those terms, the sale started becoming transactional again. Vulcar. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and you also had nothing left to talk about. You know, you get steered away from the stories. You get steered away from the romance. Everything that makes it exciting and wonderful and unique doesn't seem to be on the table at that step. And, and you're putting yourself in an awkward position because, like you said, you're not a financial consultant. You're an art dealer. You're great at expressing what it is about this art that makes it special. But now you're being asked to ironically talk about something that's well outside of your own expertise, you, you know, mm-hmm. which really would be being a psychic.
1: Yeah. Well, on, on one hand, though, I think that, that a galleryist does have the responsibility to have savvy to to be able to convey that and to have available a collection of work that they sincerely believe in is you know has integrity and has value. Uh, you know, the um, there's a lot of art out there, and to to curate. A collection that's that, you know that, that you represent, that's in on your walls is something that is a reflection uh, on you on, and on your integrity. And I think that for me, I have always been, been very proud to show the artists that, that I represent.
0: Would you never show, sell any art that you didn't like yourself, but you knew would sell very well?
1: No, I, I would not bring on board an artist, That I did not like. Um, There have been pieces by a particular artist that we represent and that I like very much that I have not liked so much, and they've been on the wall.
0: But you stick it out because you like the artist? Yes. Okay.
1: And there have also been um, pieces that have been available by artists that we represent, and I absolutely refuse to put them on the wall because I think that they... um, uh, that they are not strong enough, and I mean and, and i don't I don't expect to love everything, but I do feel like having um, a good sensibility about what what is excellent work, um, for example, if there's a piece that is physically problematic or damaged, or if there's something that um, has a a real potential default in it with the integrity of it, you know, and sometimes with animation art, this was an issue too because of the, um, of, of the way that the, the cells were treated. Sometimes animators thought that they were preserving the, um, the artwork by painting the back of the cell with nail, clear nail polish and so forth. And even though it was a great image, um, I would not have it because... I knew that that nail polish was going to dehydrate the paint. It was going to be a disaster that would have to be fully restored for double the money. And so, no, I I wouldn't buy it for $10. Yeah,
0: well, that's clearly clearly a matter of integrity, (laughs) not just taste. (laughs) And if you're in this business long enough, you know also they're coming back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even if you warn them, they're coming back.
1: My golden reputation is super precious.
0: If you didn't notice, this is one of those we stopped a little bit abruptly at the end. And if you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you probably put it together that this is part one of two parts of my conversation with Heidi Lee. So if you enjoyed it, and I don't see how you couldn't have, the stories were fantastic. You're going to definitely want to come back and listen to the next episode. It might be the next episode or it might be the one after that. We're just going to have to see. But for this one, at least, I want to thank Heidi Lee a lot. I really appreciated her time and certainly what she gave us in the conversation. Heidi, thank you very much. And since we're thanking people, I also want to thank some of the folks who have uh, been giving us really nice reviews over on iTunes. For this week, I want to thank, and uh, this is another one I'm going to have to kind of make a guess at exactly how it's pronounced. It's his handle on iTunes, uh, Valenstalls. Uh, at least I think it's a he and Valenstahl says he's been enjoying the podcast for about a year now uh and i'm quoting here and i hate reading and talking at the same time but i'll do my very best he says it's a unique perspective and it has enriched my own career perspective of the art world the great personalities and conversations have tipped me off to what otherwise would be a camouflaged elephant in my industry thank you danny and, uh, and thank you. I, I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me when you write those reviews. I also want to thank everybody else who has uh, given me some star reviews. If you would like to in some way help, it's not just the reviews. The thing that would help the most is, if you haven't been doing it already, subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Allison Zucker-Pullman at RelevantCommunications.net. Thank you to Art World News. Thank you to Redwood Media Group, and don't forget to not miss Art Expo New York, information found at York.com. And thank you to you. So until next time, may the coconuts fall at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us and more information at artdealer.show. You can also find us at all social networking sites that you can think of under the handle, yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show.